Welcome to Ununinformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Each week, Ununinformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel so dumb around your smart friends. This week, we're talking about sex ed. That's right. And if you cringe when I said that, you really need to listen to this because, you know, if it's awkward, then uh, nothing's going to happen here. So the way sex ed is talked about in schools is a really controversial topic. Um, and we're going to talk about what this debate is all about. But first, let me tell you a little story. My mom grew up on a dairy farm. And let me tell you about her experience with sex ed. So for her, the sixth grade maturation talk was the first time that she had ever learned about sex. So when she came home and told her parents, she said, why didn't you ever tell me about this? And her dairy farmer dad said, we thought you'd figure it out by looking at the cows. <laughs> so, uh, so hopefully we're getting better about you know sex ed in America. And we don't have to rely on kids figuring it out by looking at the cows. Or worse yet, the internet. So last week I attended an event addressing sex ed called Birds and Bees. This was hosted by Living Room Conversations in the Village Square. These are the same guys who hosted the event I went to that addressed uh, the climate change controversy, if you remember that podcast, if you haven't, go, go back and listen to it. So these guys are all about having a civil dialogue about controversial topics. They have hubs all over the U.S., so if you'd like to be involved, look them up. It's Village Square or Living Room Conversations. So before we talk about what the panelists had to say at this event, let's introduce the controversy. So there are two extremes in sex ed. Number one is the abstinence-only programs. And number two is the comprehensive sex ed programs. So the abstinence-only programs teach you that abstinence is the best way to prevent teenage pregnancies and STDs and stuff like that. These programs, they usually don't include education about contraceptives, you know, like using a condom. Um, and it tends to leave out things that are not in line with conservative, the conservative view on the ideal family. Um, so the nice thing about this approach is that statistically... 100% of youth who are abstinent do not have issues with premarital sex. <laughs> okay, that was that was obvious, and I, I made up that statistic, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, I know it's true. Um, anyway, but that's not the controversy. The controversy is how effective this teaching approach is in getting the desired result, especially when a good amount of youth are already sexually active. Then there's the comprehensive approach. This may include abstinence as an option, but it puts emphasis on the use of condoms and other birth control and often includes abortion as an option. So can you see why this is controversial? The panelists were first asked what they thought was the heart of the issue on sex ed. Here's what Matt Evans had to say. So he's somebody that for the past 10 years, he's been part of uh, programs that evaluate the effectiveness of abstinence-only programs throughout the U.S. Um, he's also really acquainted with um, research on comprehensive sex ed. So let's hear what he has to say. The heart of the matter uh, at the surface is, for, is uh, whether or not there's common demonstrations. That is, at least for people on the conservative side, 
if you're demonstrating to teenagers how to put on a condom, they feel like you're normalizing uh, sexual activity. And for liberals, in my experience, um, to not do that is absurd because a large percentage of kids are gonna have sex before the end of high school and so forth. So to me, that's the, the, the surface heart of the matter. Uh, the real heart of the matter, and the reason that's the surface heart, is, um, and I, I wish I could claim credit for this, but I didn't, uh, there's a sociologist at Berkeley named Kristen Luger who wrote a book called Sex Goes to School. And she said after interviewing a, a bajillion people on both sides of the issue, she found that the real heart of the matter is their view of sex. She said, um, conservatives view sex as sacred and therefore something that should only be expressed within marriage. And liberals view sex as natural, and therefore as long as it's consensual and it's safe, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's probably a good idea to, to it feels good, and why not, why not do it? So I think the real heart of the matter is that there's a different view of the nature of sex, and therefore whether it should be normalized or not, which expresses itself in the condom debate. The condom debate. So people are really uncomfortable with condom demonstrations. I mean, that, that makes sense. This is, this is an awkward subject. But it, it couldn't be any worse than my involuntary uh, sex ed that I got at scout camp when our leader decided it was a good time to uh, breed his horses in front of the troop. <laughs> yeah, that goes back to... Uh, what my mom's experience in uh, watching the cows. So, so one of the panelists was Michelle uh, Kafusi, um, and she helps write uh, sex ed policies for schools in Provo, Utah. Um, she gets to hear about the the condom demonstration debate with a committee that includes school board people and parents. It's a fascinating committee because you've got these people that if you just were to say the word like they would just like roll over and die. And then you've got other people that are saying, we've got to talk about these things and stop calling it a pee-pee. And so we have <laughs> extremes. We have this group, and we have this group. And in the middle, being as a board member, I'm trying to write a policy that meets all the needs. And here's what parents at school board meetings are saying about condom demonstrations. Yeah, I think the biggest fear that I've learned from parents is that it's opening this door of exploration that, they were, that they're hoping will never open until they say so. And then there's Carolina Allen. She's the CEO of a maternal feminist organization called Big Ocean Women. So she talked about the, the importance of the innocence of children. You know, we have certain precautions around children playing with fireworks, for example, right? because their little fingers can get blown apart. You know, I think that there's a sense in which there's, I, I really want to kind of preserve this idea of innocence in children. So I, I think I, I enjoyed that type of innocence as a, as a child. So, so much that I used to think that my mom had to get a C-section every time she gave birth. I mean, I, I figured it out eventually and maybe it was due to the sex ed that I had in my school, even though I am pretty sure that sex ed was pretty meager. But something has changed with the new generation that wasn't really prevalent when I was a lad, AKA access to the internet. So Cassie Butler has been a specialist working with um, organizations that, uh, an organization that teaches teen, teens 
uh, pregnancy prevention. So she's worked with both abstinence-based and comprehensive-based programs. So she was asked if condom demonstrations normalize sex. And she pointed out that in this generation, innocence is less of an issue. So along those lines, uh, talking about innocence and common demonstration, normalizing sex and everything, uh, the thought brought, came up earlier from what you talked about, uh, about the pornography, and that it's already very much prevalent in our society. And I think the last article I read said the average age for child to see pornography is eight. And uh, so it's all right, I think it's already normalized, and I don't know that a common demonstration is going to make that much of a difference anymore. Then there's C. Jane Kendrick, and she was a former columnist for uh, Desert News, and uh, she's currently a popular mommy blogger. And she was asked if she thought that condom demonstrations um, normalized sex. Well, sex is normal, and putting on a condom is normal, so yes, I believe that it normalizes sex. So, simply put, that's what she has to say. But that doesn't jive very well with uh, people that believe in, you know, traditional family values. So Matt Evans proposed a solution that's that's sort of sort of a compromise. There's a very forward-thinking person in the absence field named Jonine McKenzie that tried to develop sort of a bridge curriculum that was absence-based and it had condom stuff, but it was framed as a marriage prep thing. So like that's an example of where I think it you know, if it's framed as, hey, someday you're going to want to get married and here's how you have sex or here's how you prevent pregnancy or... I think it could be done in a way that doesn't undermine conservative values, but I think it's typically done in a way that does or could undermine conservative values. So what can we do so that kids can learn about sex without having to look at the cows or the horses or the internet? Here's Michelle Cafusi. She was more proud of her title as mother than as her title of uh, school board member. Here's what she has to say. I think the heart of it for me is education within the walls of your home and educate them and make them feel safe and comfortable enough so that when the tough questions come, they don't go to their friend, but they don't go to some person they don't really know, but they know will answer their question. They're comfortable enough to come to the home, come to me, and say, Mom, I'm curious about this. I've heard this. Is that true? So parents need to establish a relationship with their kids so their kids are comfortable to come to them rather than to the Internet or to other friends that may not be that trustworthy on this kind of information. And Michelle has proved that her children did trust her with tough questions. Listen to this. Just on a funny little side note, I've always had a great dialogue with my kids. It's been really helpful. My teenage boy came home from high school with his friend, and they're like, no, you ask her. No, you ask her. And I said, what? <laughs> Just someone asked me. But he said, my mom will tell us. She'll be honest. Mom, is it true you have to do an hour's worth of yoga before you can have sex? <laughs> an hour's worth of yoga. Well, she never really gave us the answer to uh, what she thought about that. Um, but but I, I think we could safely say there's not been adequate scientific research to confirm or deny this claim. So speaking of science, Matt Evans was asked, what does the science say about this debate? There's this perception that the essence programs have no evidence and the comprehensive programs have a lot of evidence. The truth is both programs don't have a lot of evidence. 
comprehensive sex ed programs took a long, long time, over a decade, to produce really good, viable programs. They do have some now that show some short-term impacts. There's an infamous study that was done by Mathematical Policy Research. It was federally funded. They looked at some of the best programs, um, and they followed them for a median of about four years, and they did not show any statistically significant impacts on um, any of the behaviors. So the conservatives said, well, yeah, but you're looking at three and a half to four and a half years later, no program produces impacts for that long. The, the, the liberal programs are generally evaluated for three months to one year. Um, so that, that was their um, comeback. But there, there, are both, there are studies now of both um, absence-only programs and comprehensive programs that have produced statistically significant behavioral impacts. But it's, the field is kind of weak, and um, I, I think you would have to do these programs every year for four or six years to really sustain the impacts. My own opinion, based on my the clients I've observed, is that they I think they probably work for six to eighteen months and have some impact on reducing these types of sexual risk behaviors. But they're not like for the next ten years you will never do these things again on either side. So after I went to the event, I decided to do a little bit of my own research, just a quick search on the internet. So one research website stated this about why the comprehensive approach is so much better than the abstinence approach. And listen closely about what they say this research finds. Quote, a large body of evaluation research clearly shows that sex and HIV education programs included in this review, which was a comprehensive uh, approach, do not increase sexual activity. They do not hasten the onset of sex, increase the frequency of sex, and do not increase the number of sexual partners. Close quote. So as far as comprehensive sex ed goes, there's a lot of things it does not do. Well, but it didn't really say anything about what it does do. Um, so it doesn't make things worse. But but yeah, what what does it do to make it better? Well, consistent with what Matt Evans said, the research is not conclusive for either abstinence or comprehensive programs. And you know what? That's how science works. We can't be confident in our research until we start seeing scientific consensus. And we can't base everything we know off of one research study. Um, and those one research studies that are just out of the blue, those are the ones that make it on the front of men's health or, you know, random uh, brochures that are, that are trying to uh, give research backup for a particular agenda. So this is how science research does work. So a scientist uh, publishes a paper, it gets peer-reviewed, and then it gets published to a journal. And to get that far is pretty difficult. But then, especially with controversial topics, um, other research will try to replicate the study um, to either confirm or deny it. Um, and then we start getting you know, a lot more research about that thing um, because scientists are trying to challenge what's already there or, or confirm it. Um, so... When we see a lot of things saying the same thing, we could say that there are a scientific consensus on the topic. Now back to sex ed, we don't have a scientific consensus on the topic. So we can say, as Matt Evans did, that the research is weak. But, but I, I'd say there's still hope to find answers through research on the topic of uh, sex ed. We just need more time, more research, long-term long -term and short-term. Now, now what if uh, Matt's research is saying that Everything we've tried so far, abstinence or comprehensive, just doesn't work anyway. So, and it's kind of looking like that, but we don't know conclusively yet. 
And, and so back to what uh, Michelle Kafusi said earlier, nothing can replace the sex ed that happens in the home. But a question came from the audience at this event. Um, and this is, this is what the question was. But what about the kids who are in dysfunctional homes? So let's go to see Jane Kendrick's response. I think the word dysfunctional is, is interesting. And definitely there are homes um, where abuse occurs and where things do not function. But I think at some level, we all come from a dysfunctional home. And that's why having good comprehensive education helps. Then there's Cassidy Butler, who was an actual mentor for kids with, with uh, dysfunctional families. Sometimes it only takes one caring adult to make a difference in a child's life. Uh, and so I have fortunately had the opportunity to be that caring adult for some teens that have needed someone at a certain time. And I'm very grateful for that. It's been amazing. So there are so many teens that don't have a safe zone to talk about. We've talked about that. And, and that's the point where the community has to step up and fill in because unfortunately their home life isn't letting that happen. Then we have Carolina Allen, who says this. One thing that I would love to see is um, kind of training to have more mentors, you know, accessible. I think that there's, there's too little out there, um, and, but I don't think that just education from school is the end all solution. I think that um, if there was some way to kind of create training for, um, for moms and dads out there or really, you know, interested mentors um, to go in and just create kind of a greater task force to help mitigate this kind of issue. I think that that would be really powerful for the whole community to get involved and not just isolated um, kind of, you know, organizations, but that we kind of all take responsibility for that. I would love to see that. So she brings up an interesting thought. There's really nothing in place to train parents or people in the community as mentors. So, so it seems like we've decided that it's the school and the family's responsibility to teach sex ed. But for those who are in crappy schools and crappy homes, there's, there clearly needs to be more. So, so maybe the solution to lowering teen pregnancies and SCDs needs an innovation, a different approach, something we haven't even considered before. And toward the end of this Birds and the Bees event, I started seeing something develop. Some of the panelists started saying, hey, we're, we're all activists here. How can we all work together to make this situation better? And really, that's what, why this event was so cool. Like instead of talking about like their disagreements and vehement debate as you might expect about a controversial topic, they decided to actually work together. That's pretty novel. And I was honored to be there to perhaps see the next innovation in sex education right at its conception. <laughs> you see what I did there? Thanks for listening. For some of you, that may be the most sex ed you'll ever get in your life. So I hope you enjoyed it. So a special thanks to Clint Rogers for sharing a post on our CS Lewis podcast. If you'd like a shout out on the show, Share a Facebook post of a story that you liked from Ununinformed. Our theme music is provided by Dee Dee Dumbo. I'm Sean Seavey, and you're listening to Ununinformed. Thanks, everybody.